Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church podcast. This talk is taken from our series Exploring Advent, a time when together we learn what it is to face darkness, see light and wait expectantly. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting. Clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. A voice said, shout. I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the Sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their lambs. Every year, the... Collins English Dictionary picks a word of the year, and it's meant to be a word that captures something of the essence of the 12 months that have gone before. The word for 2022 is permacrisis, permacrisis, which is defined as a prolonged period of instability and insecurity. Um, And it was chosen to reflect the sense of going from one crisis to another. You might have noticed that's what's been happening over the last 12 months. We've, had, um, we've gone from global pandemic to economic recession, to war in Ukraine, to climate change leading to extreme weather. You remember the summertime when it was really hot in here? Um, economic, we talked about it, energy crisis, disastrous budgets, social injustices, scores of migrant workers dying in the name of the FIFA World Cup. Permacrisis. The world is not as it should be. I found it hard this week to hear the outcome of an inquest for my friend who took her life in the summer. She was a brilliant doctor and she gave so much during COVID and she was often 
giving herself to support and help others, and she was a support to me in one of the roles that I had in, in the hospital. She left our hospital a year before her death, and I knew nothing of her anguish. The inquest found that her inner struggle with depression was compounded by work stress because she had experienced a culture of fear and bullying at the trust that she'd moved on to. The world is not as it should be. And Advent faces that reality. But in the build-up to Christmas, sentimentality goes into overdrive, doesn't it? And it's a form of comfort and escape. And there is nothing wrong with enjoying the secular Christmas traditions. I've been on the mince pie since September. <laughs> and that's a true story. Lots of cream. But in the end, no amount of tinsel or rocking around the Christmas tree or chocolate stockings can solve perma-crisis. Lasting comfort is not found there. We wait in the dark, as Adrian so helpfully explained to us last week. But what for? For what do we wait? And how do we wait? And where is true comfort? Well, those are some of the questions we are going to be thinking about this morning. The 40th chapter of Isaiah represents the start of a new section of that book named after the prophet. Isaiah 40 to 55 is sometimes called Second Isaiah, and it was referred to by some of the early church fathers as the fifth gospel. It is the most quoted section of the Old Testament in the New, apart from the Psalms. It shapes the drama of the Gospels that narrate the life of Jesus. Isaiah announces good news to troubled people. Isaiah 40 is a prophetic word. It's a word of God penetrating a moment of permacrisis for the people of God. You see, it's 600 years before the birth of Christ. And Israel is scattered in exile, held in captive in Babylon. Jerusalem, the city of God, reduced to rubble by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And the temple in Jerusalem, the precious temple, the place where you could meet with God, the place that was a, a symbol of God with his people, had been destroyed. It's hard to overstate how devastating that was. And all this happened 50 to 100 years before these words of Isaiah 40. Israel had experienced decade after decade of upheaval and confusion and apparent silence from God. And living in Babylon, they were fed daily with the message of Babylon and confronted with the gods of Babylon and conditioned by the systems of Babylon. And all of this was placing pressure on the people of God to think and to feel and to hope, quite apart from any reference to Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even this morning, I had a conversation with my 12-year-old, which helped me to see, wow, the thinking is being conditioned quite apart from the God of the Bible. Of course, in many Israelite households, the stories of the creation and the calling of Abraham and the exodus and the law of Moses and the happy years of prosperity under King David would have been told. But no temple... And no public worship, the silence of God must have felt deafening. Had he forgotten them altogether? 
Would crisis truly be permanent had his promises come to nothing? Those were the natural questions when the temple had been destroyed. The answer is no. No, God had not forgotten his people. He never could. In in fact, the book of Daniel covers the same period of time as this period. So you remember Daniel's escape from the lion's den? And Daniel's visions of one like the Son of Man, one who would be raised up and who would bring God's kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, well, that was happening at this same time while the people were in Babylon. So it's as the song goes, even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. Even through the Babylonian exile, even when the temple was destroyed, God was still at work to bring about his good plans and purposes on earth. Though most people did not know it. And perhaps life is thrown up such circumstances that it feels like, where is God? And it tells us in 2 Timothy, verse 13 of chapter 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. But permacrisis made up the daily experience of the people of God. And into that experience came the word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A piercing word of authority, piercing permacrisis. And it's so personal in its address. Your God speaks. He says, you are my people. Comfort, comfort. There is no greater comfort than belonging to the living God and those words that claim us as his own. He is no wooden image like the gods of Babylon. He lives, he speaks, he acts. But what would comfort look like? Well, perhaps not as you would imagine. When I think of comfort, my immediate thoughts go to slippers and a log burner maybe, and a cup of tea in the third mince pie of the day, and banging tunes on Classic FM. Yeah? Maybe, maybe that's what comfort looks like for you too. But God rarely conforms to our expectations. His ways are higher. And he desires our good more than we ourselves do. So his comfort often involves upheaval. The upheaval that comes when the living God enters in to upend enslaving powers and set captives free. And so encounters with God are not often slippers and a cup of tea type affair. Normally they start with fear, followed by the words very swiftly, fear not. Do you know that our God speaks He is not mute. The Bible says that he upholds everything by his powerful word. It is because he speaks that the sun keeps rising, that the stars stay where they are, that the rain falls on the earth. Do you know that he is a living God? He is not just an idea. He is not a nostalgic part of your week. He's a living God. 
mighty in power, holy and awesome, with all authority. And so we sing, not to the sky, but to the living God. All hail King Jesus, as we have done this morning. And when he speaks, everything changes because his word creates what it commands. Let there be light, and there was light. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, Isaiah says in verse 22 of chapter 40. He who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Putin's power is as nothing to God. Elon Musk's riches and influence, nothing. Do you know that? Human empires and powers are here today, gone tomorrow. Like the grass, they spring up, they wither, they pass away. But, but even the very best side of humanity, our very best efforts at justice and mercy can be like a flower that blossoms in beauty but fades over time. Because even the very best human systems often have some degree of corruption. But Isaiah's message is not about human capacity. And this is good news. Because in January, for example, let me tell you about my capacity. In January, I decided I was going to run more and eat less. And by February, I was doing the exact opposite, eating more, running less. And I've maintained that. <laughs> Human incapacity is where we find ourselves so often. But the word of God stands forever, Isaiah says. Flannery O'Connor um, was an American novelist of the 20th century. And she wrote this. She said, One of the effects of modern liberal Protestantism has been gradually to turn religion into therapy and to make truth vaguer and vaguer and more and more relative and gradually to believe that God has no power and that he cannot communicate with us, cannot reveal himself to us, indeed has not done so, and that religion is our own sweet invention. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. He lives, he speaks, but we cannot control him and he will not conform to our expectations. And so Isaiah goes on, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. And the rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 40 announces that God was coming for his people. And in the decades to come, the people of Israel would be gathered again back to Jerusalem, God would raise up Ezra and Nehemiah and the walls would be rebuilt and the temple would be rebuilt and the people would return from exile and God would again dwell amongst his people. But these famous words of Isaiah have more than one fulfillment for they are the enduring word of God. And so John the Baptist takes up these words on his lips 600 years later. John ministered in the wilderness of Judea outside Jerusalem. He was anointed to prepare in the wilderness the way of the Lord. And John is one of the chief voices of Advent. Not that you would know it from com commercial Advent calendars. 
But then I don't suppose it would sell very well if, suppose you opened the calendar door from the 4th of December and you were met with a man eating locusts saying, repent, you vipers. <laughs> not going to make much money with that one. John is not nearly sentimental enough for us. He has been called the last of the prophets and the first of the apostles because, you see, in the desert of Judea, John was the herald of the coming of the Lord and also a witness to his arrival. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he says, as Jesus approaches the banks of the Jordan. And so he echoes the words of Isaiah here in chapter 40, verse 9. Look, your God is coming. Behold, your God. He comes mighty and powerful. Everything God wants to say to the world is found in Jesus. He is the Word made flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. But John's ministry in the wilderness to make straight the way of the Lord did not look much like a ministry of comfort by my book. He's a pretty scary figure. Don't know if any of you have watched the series The Chosen. In the series The Chosen, which we love, they call him Crazy John. Because he's just a little bit scary. But what, what defined John's ministry? John's ministry was a ministry calling people to Repentance. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. In fact, it appears that in the wilderness, the way prepared for the Lord was a road of repentance. Little surprise then that Martin Luther would later observe that all of a Christian life is one of repentance. But what is repentance? What is it? Fleming Rutledge explains in this way, she says, it doesn't just mean being sorry. It means a change of life. It means reorientation towards a different goal, the goal of the kingdom of God. It means a whole different way of being. It does not mean loss of self-esteem. Quite the contrary. Repentance is for the strong. Perhaps you've noticed this. The person who steps forward and takes responsibility is the leader, not the weakling. And maybe some of our politicians should take heed. She goes on, people who are insecure are either unable to repent out of fear or are forever saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in such a reflexive way that it becomes meaningless. John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance. And our entrance upon the Advent life means taking a good long look, not at someone else's deficiencies and faults, but at our own. But how can we do this? How can we repent? If you're anything like me, you can find yourself stumbling again and again into the same sinful habits and attitudes and patterns. In search of comfort during perma-crisis, we so often turn to things which appear to offer comfort, but it's just an illusion. Like reaching out for water in the desert and ending up with a mouthful of sand. There's a kind of comfort that we can seek when we cling on to bitterness or to greed or to lust or to materialism or to pride or to defining ourselves by the opinion of others. 
And sometimes we seek rest in those places only to find that they actually leave us restless. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the ring of power is like this. Those exposed to it simultaneously love and hate the ring. They're drawn to it because they feel like it's going to give them something that they want, but in the end, it only makes them more sick, less themselves, more restless. Sin is like that. How can we repent? Well, note that Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, which starts with a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. As it goes on, there's a subtle shift in agency that happens in the following verses. It's not entirely clear in the New Living Translation, but it is there. Who, after all, is it who raises the valleys? Who is it that brings the mountains low? Who is it who smooths uneven paths? Is it human capacity? Is it willpower? Is it New Year's resolutions? Is it grass? Is it flowers? No. It is the God whose word creates what it commands. The God who comes to his people with power. The God who, like a shepherd, gathers his people to him. He is the agent of change. You see, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the one who was going to come as judge. He would come, John says in Matthew 3, with a baptism of fire and with judgment. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him as the light of the world, illuminating the darkness and bringing judgment on the powers that enslave and distort humanity and his creation. We see him casting out demons. We see him healing the sick. We see him feeding the hungry, raising the dead, cleansing the leper, forgiving the sinner, bringing in the outcast, confounding the proud, raising the humble, scattering darkness. It is he who raises the valley, he who brings the mountains low, he who makes the uneven path smooth. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth pointed out that throughout the Gospels, Jesus speaks with the authority of judge, and all the more so, the nearer he gets to the cross. You know, leading up to his passion, we hear the parables of the wise and foolish maids with their oil in the lamps. We hear about the parable of the talents, some invested well, some squandered. We hear the parable of the sheep and the goats that the window narrates, and the judgment upon them. Christ speaks with the authority of judge until the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's a changing point at which he who exposed the hypocrisy of the religious with his teaching suddenly becomes silent. And Christ himself is in the dock before the high priest Caiaphas and before the Roman governor Pilate and before Herod. And when accused, he speaks not a word in his defense, though no charge could stick to him. He's completely without sin. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, the Bible says. And yet the light of the world was silent before the gathering darkness. The judge was himself judged in our place. And at the cross, he took on himself the weight of our sin. 
And all the enslaving powers of darkness gathered on him at Calvary. And he conquered them all. All my sin, all my sin, buried with him so that I could be clothed in his righteousness. And all the powers that would enslave and distort and dehumanize me, broken by him as he died the death of a slave, as he died the death of one who was supposed to be cast out of the human community altogether. That's what a cross was all about. Died there that I may be alive with him. The illuminating light vanquishing the darkness at the darkness of the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed by the Nazis during the Second World War, a minister of the Lord who spoke up against the Nazi regime, he said this, in the incarnation at the birth of Jesus, God took on human flesh. So he accepts all humankind and bears it in himself. He embraces the whole of humanity with its genuinely sinful nature. It is not enough to say that he suffers with humanity. He actually takes humanity upon himself. He takes you. He takes me. With all my sin and my struggles and my suffering, as a shepherd takes his sheep and gathers his flock, he binds himself to us. And at the cross, he destroyed in himself everything that would destroy us. The ring of power gone. And it's distorting power. Our sin, our despair, our permacrisis, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And on the third day, he rose, the light of the world. And all the powers of darkness shuddered as he steps out from the grave. For the king has risen and conquered. And he has been exalted to the highest place. And then what happened? Well, the baptism of fire that John had spoke of, John the Baptist, happened. Yet it was not fire to burn and to scorch, but fire to set alive. As on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the followers of Jesus with tongues of fire, setting them alive with God. And the same promise exists for all believers. The Holy Spirit comes to set us alive with the knowledge that Jesus is Lord and that we belong to him. And so the Spirit comes to empower our repentance and to sustain our faith and to distribute gifts that we can play our part in hastening the coming of the kingdom of our God. And Christ shall come again. And that's what Advent is all about. Advent is forward-leaning because all flesh will see his glory. He will come again in glory, judge the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed says. And he shall put the world to rights. And permacrisis will be no more. And sin will be no more. And darkness will be no more. For the reign of the Son of God will fill the universe. This is comfort. I wonder if the band could come back up. In Isaiah 30, verse 15, it says... 
in repentance and rest is your salvation. In repentance and rest. We wait in the dark for what? For the return of the King. The light of the world. Jesus the Lord who has risen from the dead. How do we wait? In repentance and rest. Where is true comfort? It is that that repentance is empowered by the gift of the Spirit given to us because Jesus has conquered sin and death and evil. It is the knowledge that the crucified one is risen. He has done it. It is finished. He will come again in glory. His victory is won. He is Lord of all. So rest in him by the fire of the Spirit. Come to him again today and know him to be your Lord and your God. Why don't we stand together? We're going to sing a song which will be a response. And it may be that the Spirit has been moving and pointing his finger on different parts of our lives that we know that's not in alignment with the kingdom of God. And so ultimately, it doesn't bring rest, it brings restlessness. And the Spirit comes to put his finger on those things that we might, by the power of the Spirit, repent and say, no to anything that pulls me away from Jesus and yes to Jesus. Yes to Jesus the Lord, the coming King. And you might want to find someone to pray with afterwards, but actually this moment is a moment for us to stand together for the whole of a Christian life is one of repentance. And so as a community... We're going to fix our eyes again on Jesus in whom our hope is found and allow this, this song to be a prayer and also an announcement of the good news that is for us all. Mm-hmm.